Well, good evening, church, and welcome to our Good Friday service. If you're new and visiting, my name's Brendan, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are visiting for the very first time, a warm welcome to you. Uh, in particular, a warm welcome if you don't normally uh, join church, but you find yourself here this evening. We, we really want to welcome you. Our church exists because of Jesus. And we believe Jesus can change people's lives. And we want to do everything we can to introduce people to Jesus. So on your chairs, you'll see an invite here to Alpha. Uh, this is a course about answering life's big questions. Why am I here? Is there more to life than this? And who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? And if that's you and there's any way we could serve you, this course is going to be running starting April the 26th over six sessions uh, online and in person. We would love for you to be part of this course, a warm invitation from us and part of our heart as a church to serve all people, in particular those that are interested in Jesus. Well, Conquerors, you guys are dismissed out to kids' work. You thought I'd forgotten about you. I didn't. Um, out you guys go. Well, this is a very special uh, service today, this Friday, because it is Good Friday. And the reason why it's Good Friday, if you're new to following Jesus, is that this is the Friday that we remember the Lord Jesus being crucified for us. And so uh, we're going to spend some time examining this crucial moment in the Easter story, in the story of the history of the entire world. Uh, the cross, it has been famously said, is the blazing fire at the center of the Christian faith. And our task is to draw as near as we can that some of the embers from that blazing fire might fall upon us. And that's what we, we want to do this evening, is to spend some time really examining the cross um, and as we examine the cross tonight, we're going we're gonna to look at it from a, a slightly different angle tonight. We're going to look at what Christ achieved through a different lens. And in particular, we're going to look at the way in which he was shamed for us. If you have your Bibles, I uh, invite you to turn them open to Matthew chapter 27. We're not going to read uh, the passage together to start. We're going to actually go through the story together as a church as we unpack this beautiful story of what Christ has done for us. Friends, shame is a powerful emotion that all of us have felt in different times and in different ways in our lives. But it's such a powerful emotion that it can still deeply affect you even decades later. You know, I remember probably about 30 years ago, and it almost seems like a silly, insignificant story to tell, but it's so clear in my mind. I grew up uh, in Wollongong, in Dapto, a suburb of Wollongong, and I went to a small congregational church, the oldest church in Wollongong, that's about 160 years old. And it was this small church with few people my age, and, and it, again, it seems like such a small thing, but one service, at the end of the service, uh, I went to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom, and I was leaving the bathroom, and a girl about the same age as me at the time, she would have been seven or eight years of age, Siobhan Martin, and she was standing at the door to the bathroom as I walked out, and she goes, ah, the girl's toilet, you went to the girl's toilet, and I was so ashamed, I ran out of the church building and hid underneath my parents' car for about two hours. 
And 30 years later, the feeling of that embarrassment and shame is still crystal clear in my mind. See, shame is the strong emotion we experience when we fail to live up to the expectations or standards of others. Standards can be real, or those standards can be perceived. Those standards can be placed upon you by others, or those standards can be placed upon you by yourself. Shame is a two-edged sword. It actually brings both pain and joy to us. We feel deep pain when we're ashamed or shamed by others. But also in a kind of weird and twisted way, it feels incredibly good to bring shame upon others. You know, that's the power of social media where you can expose someone as a fraud or an abuser or a hypocrite in a moment to a vast audience. And there's a feeling of power that comes with that that's kind of intoxicating. You know, maybe you're here this evening and shame is what you feel all the time. Things have been said about you, incredibly hurtful things, and you carry them. Maybe something you've done in the past that no one knows about. Maybe something about yourself that you dislike and others have exposed you and have mocked you for it. Maybe it's something that's happened to your family or something that was done to you or simply that life hasn't turned out like you hoped. Well, here's the question that I want us to consider tonight as we examine the cross is how can we deal with our shame? And I believe as we examine the cross this evening, we will see that the Lord Jesus was deliberately and repeatedly shamed. And this wasn't random and this wasn't accidental, but this was purposeful and this was for us. If taking notes uh, this evening, I've entitled this message, He Bore Our Shame. I got really two points. The first point, which I've entitled, The Shaming of the Son of God. And through this point, we're really just going to unpack the story about how the Lord Jesus was shamed time and time again. And second point, the healing found at the cross. How can we find healing from our shame? But one hope for us this evening, friends, this evening, church, and that is that we would see that the Lord Jesus was shamed in order that we might be free from shame. That's where we're going tonight. That's, I believe, the burden I have for us tonight as a church, as we gather. So let's dive right into point number one, the shaming of the Son of God. Uh, We'll be reading uh, this evening from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew writes this. It's a a biography, one of four biographies of Jesus' life. And Matthew was a tax collector, which at the time meant that he was a social outcast. He was a social pariah. He was hated. And he was called by Jesus to become one of his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 9. You see, the nation of Israel had been oppressed by regime after regime after regime for nearly 500 years. The Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Egyptians, then the Seleucids, and finally the Romans. God had sent prophets who had told Israel that he would judge them for their rebellion against God, but also that there would come a king chosen by God. In Hebrew, a Messiah. In Greek, a Christ who would come and who would free his people from oppression. 
And Jesus starts his ministry by telling people that God's kingdom has arrived and that he, in fact, is the king. More, he performs amazing miracles to demonstrate God's presence with him, growing in popularity as crowds begin to follow him. But the religious leaders in Israel at this time throughout Judea had over the years become involved in politics. And because they were involved in politics, they felt that Jesus was undermining their authority. And as a result, they also begin to listen and hear that his teaching constantly critiqued them. And so Jesus for them was an increasing threat. And because of that, in addition, they begin to hear and, and see that Jesus even seemed to claim divine status for himself. And increasingly throughout Matthew's account of Jesus' life, they begin to teach and say that he must be eliminated. And they begin plotting his downfall. And so Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, had been praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside the temple. It was Thursday evening. And one of his disciples, Judas, greets him with a kiss. A kiss, a sign of friendship in Jesus' day. But Judas had planned this as a sign of not friendship, but a sign of betrayal. But this was pre-planned to highlight Jesus to soldiers that were waiting to arrest him. And they take Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where they've assembled a sham court who quickly convicts him of blasphemy. And they sentence him to death. And so we read the following in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face. And struck him. And some slapped him. Saying. Prophesy to us you Christ. Who is it that struck you? See Jesus was mocked and shamed. By his own people. They accused him of being a liar. In his claims to divinity. They spat in his face. Think about what it would be like to receive this, for someone to spit in your face. The personal rejection it symbolizes, the loathing it communicates. It says, you are scum. You are worthless. You are despicable. They struck him. Some slapped him. They violently assaulted him. The world has recently been transfixed by Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, and yet our king was repeatedly slapped. They mock his claim to kingship and his ability to prophesy. Not knowing Jesus had foretold this event numerous times. And having found him guilty in this pathetic mock trial, they send him to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. You see, since Judea was under... Roman rule, the religious leaders didn't have the authority to execute Jesus himself. They needed to convince the governor to do that for them. 
And Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea for, for about 10 years, from AD 26 to AD 36. He had a reputation as an able administrator with a typically Roman strong sense of fair play. And yet he was very unpopular with the Jewish population. And as a result, he treated them with contempt as well. In fact, there'd already been a a number of conflicts with Pontius Pilate and the locals, and these had landed him in trouble with Rome, and it created quite a difficult situation for him. Worse, it was about to get a whole lot worse for him as the religious leaders had a plan to trap him. See, Pilate interviews Jesus and quickly realizes that this is an innocent man. And so he makes multiple attempts to release him. He sends him to King Herod, the ruler in the north of Israel in Galilee, and Herod sends him back. He then tries to kind of half punish him with whipping, but the crowds still demand that Jesus be crucified. He tries to have Jesus released, but for the wrong reason. He hopes that the crowd will choose him for clemency. But instead, they chose an insurrectionist named Barabbas. And finally, he simply protests his innocence. Read with me the following in chapter 27, verse 24. Matthew writes, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And Pilate washes his hands. He's here embracing a Jewish ritual. He's trying to say to the crowds, I am not guilty of this man's murder. But the crowd is so convinced that Jesus is guilty that they curse themselves. They, in effect, say, God, hold us and our children responsible for this man's death if he's innocent. And Pilate finally consents. And he handed Jesus over to be scourged. A horrific punishment and common preparation for crucifixion. The prisoner would be tied to a post, naked, and whipped with a flagrum. A whip that consists of rope with metal balls, bones, and metal spikes designed to rip the flesh and inflict pain and suffering. And then Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers for crucifixion. You see, friends, crucifixion was designed for maximum suffering and humiliation. The prisoner would be stripped naked and humiliated publicly forced to lie on their back on the ground as their arms and legs were either roped or nailed to a horizontal beam and a vertical wooden pole. They would be provided with a small rudimentary seat on the vertical beam to stop them from 
having their hands torn loose and to maximize the length of their death. And they would be placed in a public place where they would hang naked in agony, exposed to ridicule and the elements for days before their death. See, crucifixion was public torture and humiliation. And therefore, it was thought suitable only for slaves and the worst of criminals. And yet the humiliation of Jesus has only just begun. Read with me verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him. And put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They take Jesus into the governor's headquarters, likely Herod's palace in Jerusalem. And a whole battalion, a cohort, a tenth of a legion, as many as 600 men gather together. Likely soldiers from all around the city are coming to partake in Jesus' public shaming. And they dress him up in a cheap soldier's cloak. And they make a crown out of thorns and a fake scepter. And they mock him, saying something equivalent of, Long live the king of the Jews. And they pay fake homage to him, kneeling before him. You can imagine them saying things like, What a powerful and mighty king you are. So valiant in battle and to be feared, we tremble in your presence. The meaning of the whole affair is to say, you are a fake. You are no king at all. You have no power at all and soon you will die in our hands. Then, as he had already previously They spat upon him and struck him over and over again. Imagine the shame our Lord Jesus felt in this moment. You know, it's one thing to be humiliated when you're healthy and strong. There's something so incredibly vile about mocking and shaming someone who is weak and already in agony. See, Jesus had already been severely beaten three times. First at his trial by the Sanhedrin. Then by Pilate, not once but twice. Now he's mocked and beaten again. And yet notice his quiet strength. 
Notice that there is no sign of him crying out or retaliating. His resolve to go to the cross remains firm. And when their taunting is finished, they lead him out to crucify him, forcing him to carry his own cross. And as they pass out of likely the city gate, Jesus is probably already nearing death, so physically weak that he cannot carry the cross any further. And so they force a pilgrim called Simon heading into the city to carry it for him. And then they strip him naked and they nail him to a cross between two insurrectionists right in public view just outside the city. And so we read the following in verse 38. It says this. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. See, people pass by Jesus as he hangs there and they mock him. The leaders of his own people ridicule him and shame him. Even the criminals on either side of Jesus reviled him. A word that means to find fault in a way that demeans. To mock, to heap insults upon someone. And so the Lord Jesus hangs upon a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem, naked, bleeding, battered, and in agony, surrounded by a chorus of scorn from nearly everyone, his own people, his own disciple, soldiers, leaders, even criminals. And there he hangs, dying, not in dignity as a king, but in the depths of shame as a dangerous criminal or a slave. And that is point number one, the shaming of the Son of God. Not just point number one, the shaming of the Son of God, but point number two, the healing found at the cross. See, the image of the Son of God hanging from a Roman cross and suffering in shame and scorn, is horrific. And it immediately raises the question, why? Why would he willingly submit himself to shame like this? 
To understand why, we need to understand where our shame has come from in the first place. See, the Bible teaches that everything that exists in the universe has its origin in the mind of the eternal God. You know, it's common to hear people say that they're just praying to the universe. And that kind of means something like, well, I think it means a kind of positive energy that runs through the universe. But the Bible teaches that behind the universe is not a force, but a personal God. The God of the Bible is a loving relationship. Something that's been described as like an eternal dance. A father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. That's such a mind-blowing concept to consider that that is the heartbeat of the God behind everything that we see. You know, I have this a son, my eldest, called Elijah. If you know Elijah, you will know he has an ABC's obsession. And sometimes when he doesn't know how to finish a sentence, the ABC's just come out. Even just today at the picnic in the park, uh, E1 was asking him how his day was going, and he said, I was, I, I what? ABC's. And uh, Ewan kindly said D-E-F-G, you know, to try and finish it off for him. Um, And to think about the love that I have for my son. To think that that is a dim reflection of ultimate reality. That behind the universe is a maker who describes himself as a father who loves his son. And he made the world and he made all people in his image as the pinnacle of all that he made. And he made us precious. He made us in some ways like himself. And he made people with a purpose in life. And that purpose is not to become rich or successful or well-liked, but it's to know him and to love him. Like any parent, he longs for his kids to know him and he longs to for them to love him. But our ancestors, the Bible teaches, turn their backs on him. Our relationship with our father was therefore severely damaged. It says right back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and ate of the forbidden fruit, it says in verse 7 that then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the call of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The immediate response of Adam and Eve to their rebellion was to hide from God. Why? Why would they do that? The answer is they were deeply ashamed. They're aware that they'd fallen short of his standards. They couldn't bear the thought of being in his presence. And so they run away. And friends, that is what people have been doing ever since. Running and hiding from God and running and hiding from one another. You know, if shame is the feeling we get from failing to meet other people's standards, there are definitely wrong forms of shame. The shame that comes from failing to meet the unrealistic expectations of others. The shame that comes from being ridiculed or demeaned or treated as worthless. The shame that comes from being assaulted or abused. 
But this doesn't mean that all forms of shame are wrong. You know, in our culture, we call a person who has no shame, shameless. To be shameless implies that a person has no care whatsoever for how their behavior affects others. See, though there are many wrong forms of shame, there is a right form of shame as well. And that is shame that comes from falling short of not others' standards, but God's standards. This is the shame that Adam and Eve first felt and we've been feeling ever since. This is the shame that leads us to run away from God and from others. See, the Bible teaches that regardless of how we feel, we are all guilty of actions that are deeply shameful. You know, if you ask the average person in this neighborhood, do you struggle with a deep sense of shame? Some may say yes, but I'll tell you what, most people are going to say, no, what are you talking about? We're told that shame is something used to manipulate people. Plus, we feel we're good people. We're upstanding citizens. We're environmentally concerned and we're responsible. But we completely miss the fact that we have failed in the most important area. And that is in how we treat God. You know, it's been well said by Philip Jensen that the best sailors in the world are those that dedicate themselves thoroughly to their job. The best sailors in the world rise up early and prepare their clothes. The best sailors diligently attend every duty on a ship. They give great attention to detail and they obey to the letter the instructions of their commanding officers. But if that sailor is on a pirate ship, it really doesn't matter how diligently they do their job. In fact, if that sailor is in fact on a pirate ship, the greater their diligence, the greater the destruction in many ways they reap, the greater the wrong as they contribute to the wrongs of the ship. And it's the same for us. If we're living our lives under the flag of rebellion against God, God will not accept us. And Jesus puts it this way. When asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to the man asking him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. See, if God is truly, as Jesus taught, a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. If God made us to know and love God with our everything, but we've lived our lives with a complete disregard of him, we ought feel a great sense of shame. The truth is we're broken people. We so often feel shame when we shouldn't. And we so often feel no shame when we should. And yet the wonderful message of the Bible is that God determined to make a way to deal with our shame and to restore us to the purpose for which we were made, to know him and love him. Well then, what is the solution God decided upon? It's the very thing we've been studying this evening. He sent his son Jesus 
to carry our shame for us. You see, Jesus is God the Son. He's the per- one person of the eternal God. He created the world and everything in it. And he became joined to us in our humanity. He was born as a child. And he lived life in perfect relationship with God, loving him with his whole heart, with his whole mind, and with his whole strength, and loving others as himself. He lived life for us. And as he goes to the cross, he is deliberately embracing shame. The shame and humiliation that we rightly deserve for how we have treated God, he embraces. He dies in our place, a death as a substitute. The judge of all humanity sends his son to pay the penalty of the condemned. And the son willingly goes. The Lord Jesus was truly innocent. He did not deserve to die. But he embraced upon the cross God's verdict for all of our sin. And so Matthew writes that darkness descended upon the land in the middle of the day, symbolic of the impending judgment of God. And as Jesus hangs in disgrace upon the cross, he screams, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning, why are you allowing my enemies to kill me? See, God was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus for all of our sins. And hours pass until Jesus cries out again. And this time he gives up his life. Matthew writes that immediately... Matthew writes that immediately the earth begins to quake and the temple curtain tears in two. Meaning that Jesus has made a way to come back to God. See, Jesus' embrace of death and shame for us was deliberate. That's why Matthew is at such pains to show us how much he was deliberately humiliated. He was embracing the shame we deserve so we can be freed from shame and cease our hiding from God and others. You see, we experience shame when we fall short of someone's standards. But Jesus was paying in full for our failings against God and embracing their shame so that those who trust him won't have to. You know, some 450 years ago, John Calvin wrote this of this passage. He said, our filthiness deserves that God should hold it in abhorrence and that all the angels should spit upon us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved to be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproach. So true. He embraced our shame upon the cross. But let there be no question about the willingness of Jesus to embrace our shame. He considered the price of rescuing us from our sin and shame a joy. And he gladly endured the cross for us. The writer of Hebrews writes, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
See, the Lord Jesus, in his willingness to embrace the wrath of God for us upon the cross and in his suffering and shame, provided a wonderful means for us to be healed from our sin and shame. So, as we close our time together, a question I want us to consider is how can we enjoy the healing from shame that Jesus provides upon the cross? Firstly, as we finish our time together, I just want to pause and address those amongst us that are following Jesus. Friends, if you're here and you're following Jesus and experiencing a deep sense of shame, you know, maybe it's shame over something you've done. Or maybe it's shame over something done to you. And you feel tainted by it. It makes you feel dirty. Maybe it's simply that you've not lived up to your expectations or even the expectations of others. And so you feel deeply ashamed. And you find yourself wanting to run and to hide. I want to encourage you as we close to remember the wonderful high priest you have in Jesus. And to remember he knows what it feels like to experience shame. I want to encourage you to spend some time this Easter at the foot of the cross and to remember how he was shamed for you. To see how he was ridiculed and how he embraced the shame you and I deserve. I want you to take those feelings of shame to him this Easter. And I want you to lay them at his feet. I also want to encourage you to take them to a fellow Christian. You don't need to live with shame anymore. Because every failing, Jesus has paid in full. But secondly, I just want to finish with addressing those that are here that are interested in Jesus, but not yet following him. I want to thank you so much for coming tonight, if that's you. We, we love people that are interested in Jesus, and we want to welcome you here. I just want to encourage you. Jesus died on the cross in agony and shame to pay the price for our sins and failings. He died so we wouldn't have to feel shame anymore. But not everyone receives his gift. See, Jesus extends the gift of his sacrificial death and shame to everyone. But that gift is received through repentance and faith. See, to receive the gift of his death means recognizing that you and I need it. We have not loved the Lord our God as we should and and we're not capable of paying him back. It means to see that he is God the Son, the King who died in your place and to personally trust in him. And it means to give up authority over your own life. To recognize you've been living under a pirate's banner, under a pirate's flag, in rebellion. And to begin to Instead, live for this king under his banner and to follow him. To follow the king who would be willing to die for you. And to start, all you need to do is to pray and to speak with God. Now, if that's you here tonight, we would love nothing more than to help you in that journey. I just want to invite you, come and speak to the person who brought you here or to one of us. We don't want to embarrass you, but we would love to help you. 
I want to invite you to come and join us on Alpha as well. It's a wonderful opportunity to explore some of those questions. Well, friends, I trust we've been encouraged tonight as we've examined the way in which our Lord Jesus has borne all our shame upon the cross. Would you join with me in praying as we close? Lord God Almighty, we come before your throne humbled to think that we, your people, who have lived our lives in rebellion to you, would find such a Savior as this. As we've seen tonight, the way in which our Lord Jesus was repeatedly mocked and scorned and shamed. How can we say anything to you but, my God, thank you. Thank you for the price you paid for us. Thank you for the lengths you went to to rescue us. Thank you that you would be willing to embrace the scorn and shame of the cross for us. Lord God, I pray you would help us to trust the Lord Jesus more and more and to find in him a freedom from all shame. And we pray this in Jesus' name.